Welcome to Gays with Kids. Gays with Kids. A podcast about creating and raising families. Creating and raising families together. 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 Hi, I'm Brian Rosenberg, the founder of Gays with Kids. My pronouns are he, him, and his. My husband and I created our family through a combination of adoption and surrogacy. Our eldest son, Levi, is 12, and his twin sisters are 10. I'm David Dodge. I'm the executive editor at Gays with Kids. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I'm in a known donor arrangement with two very good friends of mine that resulted in the birth of three kids. My name is Giovanni Desjardins. My preferred pronouns are he and him, and I'm a contributing writer for Gays with Kids and a hopeful dad. And I'm Britt Smith, Gays with Kids associate editor and staff writer. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a hopeful future parent. Here is the news that you need to know this week. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, a gay dad and New York Democrat, said this week that he plans to reintroduce a bill that's aimed at improving sexual orientation and gender identity data collection in violent crimes and suicides. In other news, former NSYNC boy band member Lance Bass and his artist husband, Michael Turchin, have announced that not only are they pregnant, but they are expecting to have twins in November. And over a year ago, Gays With Kids hosted its very first webinar, which was focused on the impact of COVID-19 on family planning options for queer men. A year later, we've developed a series on surrogacy, adoption, foster care, and we've got more in the works. David, tell us a little more about the year of Gays With Kids webinars. So, yeah, so I mean, it's we were just kind of reminiscing about this, but we had been talking about doing events like this forever. I mean, Gays With Kids has now been around for seven years and in almost as many years, we've been talking about uh, ways to be bringing experts to our community that's been rapidly growing on Instagram and online. Um, and for whatever reason, we needed a pandemic to kick us in the butt to actually do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but it is, I will say, I think the term silver lining is very overused during this pandemic, but this is one of them for us. And we needed to figure out some way to be helping uh, calm the nerves of so many people that were in the middle of these processes, adoption, uh, foster care, surrogacy, and freaking out. I mean, there were incredible stories of of dads being trapped abroad, not able to get home with the kids they were trying to adopt or mm -hmm. uh, intended parents that were living in Europe or elsewhere around the world, having babies that were going to be born in the U.S. and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to get them and, and be there for that like incredible moment. And, you know, none of us had any idea how long this was going to go or what it all meant. And so not only were our community freaking out, but so was our the experts <laughs> that work in, in these fields had to scramble. I mean, they really did some incredible work to make sure that they were helping gay dads be there for these incredible moments of births, adoptions, and, you know, really had to do a ton of work behind the scenes. So we'd been talking with um, experts over this time to try to figure out a way to be bringing their expertise to our community. And this kind of was the first thing that we were able to present. And it was great. We were able to have uh, representatives from the worlds of foster care adoption and surrogacy and IVF. And each of them were able to kind of talk about what the impact was in their specialties and what it meant for people pursuing them. And, you know, I think it calmed everyone's nerves a lot. And we also just realized that we are a good medium to be doing these types of things. And so we spent the summer launching our first um, webinar series around surrogacy, going into every last little detail from uh, how to pick an agency to how, how to match with the surrogate and choose an egg donor, all that good stuff. We 
did one on adoption at the same time, going into similar level of detail. We just did our first series on foster care. So yeah, there's clearly a desire for this kind of information in our audience. And so I'm really excited that we're able to do this. And I know kind of the next phase of this is something that Brian is very excited about, which is to also find ways to be bringing this community together of people who are already dads because we're all over the country, all over the world, and we don't always have the easiest places to come together um, and talk about being gay dads uh, as our very popular Instagram page <laughs> is an attestation to is we need we need these spaces. So I think that these webinar series that that we have coming up um, that are going to be more focused on what it means to be a dad are going to be hopefully very well received as well. I'll just add one thing, David. We did host a few webinars when the pandemic first started just for dads, where we brought dads together. It was really, it was great. Actually, I think people got a lot out of it. It was a great way to connect with others. It was towards the beginning. The first one was towards the beginning um, of the pandemic. And then we did one about a month, a month and a half later. Uh, and it was cute. Some people brought babies. Uh, and we just, we also had some key influencers, some popular dads on social that came and just talked about what they're doing to keep sane. Uh, very, very well received. So we're, we're planning to launch uh, some more programs that are just for dads to just come together. Uh, but I'm very excited about the upcoming launch of the GWK Experts Program, uh, which, as David mentioned, brings people who can help us once we are dads navigate fatherhood. We're launching with a diverse, awesome group of experts. We've got you know financial advice, legal advice. We've got um, a diaper engineer for new dads who don't know how to even change a diaper, let alone figure out what diapers to buy. We've got a creative engineer who's going to help dads really get their creative juices blowing. We've got a wedding expert, a travel expert. Uh, I hope to confirm one or two more. And so look for some upcoming webinars, uh, Facebook Live events to, to bring these GWK experts to, to dads directly. So I'm very excited about the launch of that. I had the chance to kind of tune into um, a couple webinars, and I've definitely learned a lot. As you guys know, I'm, I'm fairly new here. It's only been about three months. So um, I am learning a lot as I um, spend my time with you guys, working and writing with you guys. So I've You're also fairly time. young. Yes. <laughs> Te teach them yes. young. Teach them yes. young. Yes. <laughs> I love go. it, Gio. You're going to know. You're going to be an oh, expert yeah. before you're even able to drink. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I was able to sit on, on the one about um, adoption and it opened my eyes a lot. So Good. Definitely. That's, That's great awesome. to hear. Bram. I just can't say that really warms my heart because as a guy, a, a gay man who's in his <clears throat> 50s, um, it, you know, when we were your age, you know, no one was thinking about fatherhood. Very few people were. And as David has certainly heard me say this before, yeah, I wasn't even out yet. And by the time I came out in my mid-20s, it was all about HIV and AIDS and everyone was wondering when they were going to get AIDS and die. And so to hear of like a young guy who's planning for the potential of fatherhood, it just does my heart good. So thank you for, for sharing. I appreciate you guys. <laughs> I mean, not to pat ourselves on the back, but <laughs> that we can be a place where people from the age of 20 on up um, know where they can go and get this information. And so when they are prepared, whenever you're prepared, Gio, hopefully you'll feel super equipped in a way that a lot of gay men in the past have not felt like we're, you know, you really feel blindsided by <laughs> these uh, processes and how complicated they are. So at least you know how complicated they're going in. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't be surprised now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
if you end up having twins, I guess Brian can give you some extra advice on that. Because uh, Brian has twins who are, how old are they, Brian? 10 years old? Uh, they're 10 years old. Very 10 years old. Yes. And uh, our, our second news story is about former NSYNC member Lance Bass, who is also expecting twins. So what advice, Brian, do you have for somebody who might be expecting twins? Don't expect to sleep anytime soon. <laughs> Uh, actually, it's interesting. So I had an occasion to be on a conference call with Lance and Mike. Um, and I know that they um, have been trying to become dads for a while now. And like many of us on our paths of fatherhood, we, we have to overcome some hurdles and, and deal with some loss. And they did as well. So I'm very happy for them. Um, twins are a lot of work, but it's, you know, in some regards, you're getting two done at the same time. And so uh, that uh, at least you don't have to go through the process again. Um, but it, it's exciting and a lot of work. And uh, just keep, my biggest advice is you keep them on the same schedule. Mm -hmm. They go to sleep down for naps at the same time. They eat at the same time. You have to keep them on the same schedule or you will absolutely go bad and you will not <laughs> sleep at all. I used to nanny for twins and I found that same, it was like a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. gig. Um, the parents were very, very busy. And I had to learn that same thing. Keep them on the same schedule as much as they could. The babies had other ideas. They didn't know what to Correct. sleep at the same time. Correct. But you put them down at the same time. They learned that they, they go through things at the same time. And then it sort of became like their expectation. And slowly but surely, as a nanny, I was able to sort of learn how to handle two babies. It was, it was a lot of work, though, for sure. Lots of diapers. Brit is not available for being a nanny anymore. Not available. Don't ask. <laughs> yeah. I, was a full -time I was job. I was a real Mary Poppins, though, when I first came to the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> With the umbrella and everything? Yeah, flew in. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, I'm, um, I'm actually a twin myself. So, oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. So um, a little bit of personal experience. Obviously, I'm not a dad yet. Um, but I will say that individuality is a lot for twins, just because you're constantly compared to each other, you know what I'm saying, and growing up in the same households and wearing the same clothes and stuff like that. So I would definitely stress as much as you want to obviously make these these children realize that they are siblings. Also give them a sense of individuality and, you know, highlight what makes them different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you an identical twin? Are you fraternal? Fraternal. Fraternal, fraternal yeah. twin. You guys look alike? I got nothing like. Matter of fact, funny enough, I look exactly like my mom and my brother looks exactly like, like my dad. So we're, <laughs> I'm my mom's twin and my brother's my dad's twin, basically. <laughs> and my daughters are who are, uh, you know, have the same egg donor, the same sperm donor, and they don't look a thing. I don't even think they look like their sisters. You know what? That's funny. A lot of either parents or twins will say that. And then I have a lot of people that tell us we look exactly alike and I don't um. see it at all. So <laughs> I think when you live with them, you kind of get used to the faces, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I am not a twin, nor do I have twins, but I can bring the policy want conversation about twins. <laughs> do it. Into That's this why you're here, David. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, what I find fascinating about this um, is that, you know, I think a lot of people conceptually see famous gay dads like Lance Bass, uh, and a lot of them have twins. So wait, who among the famous gay dads have twins? I think- um, Ricky Martin. Ricky Martin does, yeah. Sorry, Neil Patrick does. Harris. Yeah. So anyway, a lot of lot of uh, famous gay dads have twins, uh, and a lot of gay men in general have twins, especially um, uh, gay men with older children, because it used to be very common for surrogacy agencies and IVF clinics to transfer multiple embryos to try to increase the likelihood that one would take, and then so oftentimes two would take or even more. Right. Um, but they've gotten so much better with the technology that now most fertility clinics will actively try to encourage you just to transfer one embryo because the twin pregnancy is 
more dangerous, dangerous for the surrogate. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So it's actually now starting to reduce the number of twins that we're seeing among uh, gay dads. But if you're a part of a couple, it makes sense that you go in and, you know, you hope that you can transfer one from both man so you can have uh, both a biological connection to the child. So it makes sense that that's something that people want. But they've started doing something called dual journeys where they'll have you work with two different surrogates at the same time um, and will give birth, you know, roughly at the same time as well as a way to try to reduce the the danger in any one surrogate. So you, you have to have a lot of money for that. Yeah. Those are for rich people. <laughs> yeah. They do give you a break on it, though. So this is like okay. because they do want to try to make it less, uh, um, you know, harmful for the surrogate. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of surrogates that are more than happy to carry twins and fertility clinics that will work with people that want to transfer two um, or more embryos at once. But it's just kind of an interesting trend <laughs> in the world of trends and uh, in the world of gay dads and surrogates. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, who is a New York Democrat, um, is reintroducing the LGBTQ Essential Data Act, which would require law enforcement to include sexual orientation and gender identity information in the CDC's database called the National Violent Death Reporting System. Congressman Maloney said that this was really important because of the uptick in violence against transgender people. I really, I mean, just with all of this kind of stuff, it's there's so little reporting on LGBTQ people generally. I mean, this was a big push uh, before Trump got elected to try to include LGBTQ people on the census count. So we would have <laughs> some sort of idea of how many of us are out there. We really are just still guessing at this point. Um, and it's, you know, all official numbers are almost definitely an undercount because a lot of people aren't comfortable even expressing their sexuality or gender identity to some random person with a clipboard. But yeah, around the experience of queer foster kids in the foster care system around the country, we just don't have great numbers on any of it. And so, you know, the numbers that we do have, it's probably worse than uh, than what we even know. So like if you look at the Trevor Project's website, they list suicide as the second leading cause among death among um, all young people aged 10 to 24. But for LGBT youth, it's um, almost three times the rate of heterosexual youth. So this is not a problem that's gone away. And it's something that we won't be able to address unless we have better statistics on it and can really understand the problem better. Um, so I applaud Maloney for for doing this. And, stick, you know, and this is also just why I think it's so important to have not just LGBTQ people in power around the country, but also people that have, uh, I mean, I think, you know, you don't have to be a parent to care about uh, trans youth, but I think it helps if you are and that you have some sort of experience, uh, especially within our community. So uh, Maloney is a father to three kids with his partner, Randy Flork. Um, so yeah, it's great that we have that representation and I'm, I'm glad that he's pushing for it. Representation matters. We need more gay dads. So I mean, still, I think we did like a roundup of gay dads that are in office before this last election. And I was hoping that there would have been a lot more. So we we included Pete Buttigieg because he wants to be a dad. <laughs> but so that shows Just you- Because uh, we love him. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, husband. I think maybe in a generation there'll be a lot more. But so yeah, besides Sean Patrick Maloney, in terms of like the high levels of office, there's obviously Jared Polis in Colorado, who's the governor there. So I think he's the, still the highest elected gay dad that we have. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's like a lot in state houses and, you know, I know that a lot of gay dads have, are running and hope to get elected. So hopefully we'll see more representation among LGBTQ politicians generally, but also those that have kids in the, in the future. And I think there are more, I know that we have one in our city council, so I think there are more. Yeah, they're coming. Yeah, they're coming. And you're in Boston. I I also spoke to uh, a gay dad who's running for Senate in Missouri. Um, Tim Shepard, you can find his story at gayswithkids.com. 
and he had married a man who had a child from a straight relationship. So he was just within the last year, not only had he become a stepdad, but he was also starting to run for office. So, you know, even in the South, there is representation. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And here's more from Missouri's Senate Democratic candidate and gay dad, Tim Shepard. I grew up uh, on the Kansas City side of the state, uh, about 40 minutes north of the city in a little town called Kearney. And we were a fairly religious family. And so I grew up going, uh, a lot of my childhood took place in the town over called Excelsior Springs because we spent a a lot of time uh, with our church community. And so uh, I had a pretty idyllic childhood. Uh, We didn't have a lot of money, but the faith community really created a a fantastic set of friends. Um, And when we didn't have the resources to be able to take part in things, uh, you know, like camp, uh, the faith community really came in and and helped us be able to feel just like everyone else. And and it was pretty great. I had gone to Boston to study architecture. And in 2009, we had a practicum program at my school. So I was working at an architecture firm. And when the economy crashed, that created a lot of uncertainty for me. I decided because I had been on this culture exchange trip through my church group uh, to Morocco that when I lost my job at the architecture firm, I had a standing invitation to come back and and help out women connect to fair trade markets. And so I raised uh, some money and, and I got myself back to North Africa in Morocco for a uh, an extended trip. When I came back to the States and I wanted to make a career of it, um, I had to raise a lot of money and go through a missions organization. And when I came out as gay, um, identified myself, so to speak, uh, they disinvited me, uh, rather fired me uh, from from the program for being incompatible uh, with their theological tenets, even though um, I was, in fact, compliant with all of the requirements. I didn't have a degree um, and I had racked up student loan debt and there's all this uncertainty in the job market. And so that left me back uh, on my parents' couch as a yo-yo millennial trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what's next. I uh, went from delivering pizzas at Pizza Hut to getting a valet job at a hotel and then on the side just working really hard uh, to try and figure out how to market myself as a web designer, I decided to put up my portfolio on to the job markets and, and get myself to New York with no money, um, no connections in New York and, and interview. And so I couch surfed some really amazing friends and my cousin uh, had tremendous mercy on me and really helped me get through that time because I had literally like no money at all, no working phone. And my clothes were getting worn out and and like a lot of problems uh, Mm -hmm. that you need to solve when you're trying to interview at major employers in Manhattan. Nothing came of that for like eight months. And I was just about to toss in the towel um, and move back to Missouri and go back to working at Pizza Hut delivering pizzas again. And that's literally the the day that I was preparing 
to move back. Uh, my employer, former employer now, uh, called me up and they were like, hey, we have a contract role available for you. Can you start Tuesday? And I was like extremely enthusiastic. I was like, yes, I'll be there. Um, and you know, my ID at this point had expired. <laughs> All of the problems that happen when you're in poverty happened. So the end of my contract is coming up. I'm a gig worker in the gig economy. And I go to my, my boss and I'm like, listen, the gig economy is BS. I was like, you are participating in all of the economic upsides. And I think that you need to let me participate in those upsides. So I want you to hire me in as a junior executive. He really respected where I was coming from and he really uh, respected the work I had done for him. And so he agreed and he, he went to bat for me and he, he made space for me uh, within the company. And they, they identified me as a promising LGBTQ talent. And they sent me to a talent accelerator called um, Out Leadership. And they taught me all about activism within the private sector and how um, a lot of us who really care about equity and equality in the world are strongly lobbying our employers and holding them accountable to create that space because they have power. And and so uh, really getting the activist community within the private sector to hold our employers accountable to do good in the world. Mm. And that's how marriage equality was actually able to advance so quickly because so many activists, we were lobbying our employers and our employers went to bat on our behalf, writing amicus briefs, um, writing letters to to legislators, and and lo and behold, we got marriage equality passed. You found your activism bone, really, huh? Yeah, and and so that's what brought me to Tennessee because the same employer uh, that that uh, sent me to out leadership decided to move their headquarters from New York City down to Nashville, mm-hmm. and immediately, almost, there was an opportunity for me to put that activism skill set to use. Um, the Tennessee state legislature, very similarly to the Missouri state legislature, has a lot of people who, in order to earn votes, they like to um, stir up a lot of hate. And there were seven very discriminatory bills toward LGBT people, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, that that session. And I went to my employer alongside uh, a lot of other activists in the community, and we lobbied uh, my employer. I helped lobby my employer and we became the first major company in Tennessee history to lobby the state legislature on behalf of a social issue, uh, on behalf of our employees. And that paved the way for all of the other major companies in Tennessee to join us. They all signed um, a letter um, and not a single one during that session, not a single one of those seven discriminatory bills made it um, onto the floor. They didn't make it out of session. Wow, that's huge. It was huge. And that's when I'm getting my first exposure into uh, the legislative process, how to move the levers of the system and and like what is our civil society? like how do we how do we build coalitions of people together um, in order to to be effective? I actually feel that we're at um, an amazing and critical 
juncture in American history yeah. um, where we where we get to decide again who do we want to be as a society and and that gets really into why I'm running for the U.S. Senate. We all know what the last four years have been like, very traumatic. Uh, and then there's a huge cultural backlash that seems to be happening um, against the expansion of access to equity within our society for mm-hmm. all people. In in my campaign, whenever we launched it, um, we were looking at Missouri's history when we became a state. And you know, when Missouri became a state, we signed the Missouri Compromise. And now I feel like we're having a new a new revisiting, if you will, of the same old debate. Mm-hmm. And are we uh, going to compromise our national creed? For we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, um, so that the profit and comfort of, of a few can be preserved, or are we going to continue to push forward to expand the social contract and bring more people in? And so that's why our campaign slogan is Missouri Uncompromised. Um, and, and that's really the driving force behind the campaign. I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about your time in Tennessee once you'd moved down there with your company and you said that you met a boyfriend who turned into a husband, the love of your life and your daughter. And you said you found clarity of purpose. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, back in Tennessee, right before I met Drake, uh, who's now my husband, um, there was an incident that occurred for me at work in my personal life where I was lobbying my employer against CoreCivic, which is the largest for-profit prison operator in the country. They're headquartered in Nashville. They wanted to join the LGBT chamber that I had partnered with against the discrimination bills against LGBT people. And I, that didn't sit well with the activist community. It didn't sit well with me. I, I went back to my employer and And I said, we need to do something about this. They decided that this time wasn't the right time. I disagreed. I stayed very tenaciously at it. I kept emailing them and and pestering them and saying, we have to do something. And eventually the chamber gave the activists in the community the opportunity to do something. And I went to the hearing that they had scheduled and and I lobbied um, against Core Civic. It was successful, but when I got to work the next day, I discovered they stripped me from being the chair of the LGBTQ employee resource group for insubordination, for going ahead and speaking out against uh, Core Civic when they told me not to. Right after all of that stuff happened with Core Civic, uh, he was uh, heading operations um, in the back of house for 21C Museum and Hotel in Nashville, which is just down the street from where I worked. So we met on a dating app and then we met up for lunch at the hotel uh, just to sort of feel each other out. And I wasn't sure exactly how our her, our first encounter went, but I texted him after lunch and I was like, hey, I really enjoyed uh, meeting you. I'd love to hang out again sometime. And um, we met up again for drinks that evening at Alley Taps there in Printer's Alley. And uh, there was some amazing live music happening. And we just uh, 
really connected. And, and then we found ourselves at a karaoke place and he can sing like nobody's oh, business. And there goes your heart, right? And that was that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that for me. I needed to get away from work as much as possible um, for my emotional well-being. And so like the bright spot of my day was he worked down the street and we would find any excuse to go to a coffee shop and, and just be. So we were going through a pretty normal dating process, courtship process, taking things slow. And then presto bingo, the pandemic happens. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, are you going to pandemic? Are we going to pandemic together? Um, or are we going to go our separate ways, essentially? Um, and so we decided to pandemic together. And he told me uh, about Tylen, his, his daughter, um, our my stepdaughter, our daughter. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be dating you and getting to know you, then I, I need to get to know Tylen and in the same capacity and, and earn her love and trust and respect. She was seven at the time and uh, she is just wonderful. She came to visit us uh, during the pandemic. It was her spring break and, and she came to, to Nashville with us. And in that little tiny apartment, um, we just made our way and, and we figured out how, how to make a, a very happy life out of really extraordinary times. Can I ask if she is she Drake's biological child? Yeah, she is. So Drake was uh, married at, in his early twenties uh, to a woman, and it's a beautiful blended family that that we've put together, and uh, it's really it's quite something. And Ty has an amazing relationship uh, with all of all of us, and and we have a, a custody arrangement worked out, and uh, it's just really beautiful getting to see how she's growing and developing and uh, the new responsibility, obviously for me of, of fatherhood going from bachelor life to uh, family man. It's, it's really the most amazing step that's happened in, in my life. Um, and it gives me like a tremendous sense of pride and, and purpose uh, being able to see this little human being that's growing and developing and, and learning herself, uh, how to operate in the world, being able to have, you know, the, the parental influence. Um, I'm, I'm more of thinker in the family. Um, <laughs> and so it's a, it's a it's beautiful to interact with Ty in kind of that way. And, and to like, just make it known to her that she can ask any question that she wants and, and talk about anything and to create space uh, for her to be comfortable in her own skin. And it's nerve-wracking looking forward because she's eight years old right now and she is a firecracker. Um, and, you know, it, it's not long between eight and pre-teen years. Pre-teen is coming and I'm just like, yeah. oh, my gosh, like how are we going to make sure that we prepare her properly? It's going to be a fun, fun journey. There's been a lot of anti LGBTQ legislation in the South, there's, there's always some hate crimes in the news. I mean, how has life changed for you now that you're a dad on top of being a part of the LGBTQ community? Uh, mostly for the better. I think uh, 
it's been an amazing new bonding opportunity with our extended families and my parents and sisters and nieces and nephews and having all the nieces and nephews being able to play with each other is is a really beautiful thing um and in terms of hatred that's out there um we tend not to focus on that or think about that uh we know it's there but for the most part we we lean into you know our family unit and and creating safe space and and uh obviously when these bills come up the discrimination bills we fight them and then on the offensive side we have things like the equality act at the national level or mona here at the state level here in missouri um fighting for equality under under the law and then you know our family we're very intentional about the fact that you know i'm running for u.s senate that's a high profile thing to do and uh we're putting ourselves out there very very consciously um we know a lot like quite frankly there's like a lot of democratic committee men and women who who address um our family by by saying things like okay let's talk about the gorilla in the room you're gay he's black um that's the gorilla is it yeah that's that's yeah. apparently a, a factor um i disagree sure. fundamentally yeah. and i think that the people of this state you know my experience growing up in missouri as a poor kid um is that we love each other and we take care of each other and our neighbors we're neighborly. And so I'm not seeing in my personal experience with my neighbors, this horrible discrimination factor um, that we see at the state legislature level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that most of that level of hate is targeted at a very small portion of the population coming from a very small portion of the population and that they have just figured out how to wrestle power and create controversy and use fear um, as their tactic to to try and manipulate society the reality of society itself is a lot more complex than that and i think that the people of missouri are in my experience some of the most loving generous neighborly people um that i've ever known i'm all of my neighbors love us now and and they loved us growing up and and it's been incredible to see how people rally around each other and actually support each other you can read more about tim and drake's story at gazewithkids.com make sure you're following us on social media at gaze underscore with underscore kids and we'll see you next week for another episode